Princesses. Prince William. Colors. Alright y'all, episode 6, we're jumping right into it. This is a continuation of the conversation we started in episode 5, where we were talking about JDC. Last episode, we talked to Daniel Birdie from Prince William Times and got some background on the JDC. Now, this episode, we're talking to a local activist with PwC Mutual Aid, Salima Dries. And then afterwards, we're going to be sharing our thoughts on the topic. And we encourage you to join in on the conversation, comment on our social media, let us know what you think. And also make sure that you are reaching out to your local elected representatives to share your thoughts as well. Yeah, Prince William County Mutual Aid is a relatively new organization within our county. They started at the beginning of the pandemic, I think it was in like February or March, where they saw that the government wasn't really providing the resources that residents needed in the area. Later on, after the death of George Floyd, PwC Mutual Aid added a activism component to their work. And now they're heavily involved in the conversations regarding the JDC. We talked to Salima Dries, who is an active member in PwC Mutual Aid. And we kind of talked to her about what PwC Mutual Aid is doing in regards to the JDC and what opinions they hold on the entire construction of the new building. Um, so the JDC, uh, we Prince William currently has one. It's been operational for, I believe, 40 or 50 years. It's pretty run down. Um, so at a board of supervisors meeting in July, they just kind of sprung it on us that they were going to make a new quote-unquote trauma-informed uh, JDC. So immediately we were, some of our organizers were kind of asking like, how can we help and how can we stop this? Because um, as part of mutual aid, we also um, highlight like political education. And so we, a lot of our organizers are interested in abolition efforts of the prison industrial complex and things like that. So seeing a new JDC be proposed for our county was really concerning. And so we just started kind of researching, seeing how the board members uh, were, were voting, how they thought about the JDC. Um, and there just weren't a lot of voices advocating against the JDC. So that's kind of a space that we we saw to to kind of jump in and help, um, especially because we a lot of our members have personal knowledge of how the prison industrial complex can harm our youth, especially. So um, it was just really concerning to see that the board would be considering spending fifty million dollars on this facility when we're you know in the middle of a pandemic and people need so many other things. Uh, you said that you guys have been very heavily involved and the people in your organization have been researching and have had personal experience with it. Are there any other groups that are um, uh, organizing against this um, proposed JDC? Yeah, there's a few other groups. Um, I would say that we're kind of leading the charge and other groups are supporting our work and just giving us helpful advice on how to better organize. Um, so groups like La Colectiva and Surge Nova, uh, Free Them All, um, have been really helpful in just like getting the word out about our actions um, at the board meetings and things like that. We've also started working a little bit with 
a Richmond-based organization called Rise for Youth. Um, they kind of train kids ages 14 to 24 into in how to advocate for their community. And they had um, done some mock debates around this proposed JDC. So they've been helping us with research um, and they have this really great framework um, where they want to reimagine a world without kids in prison. And I think that that's kind of something that I have been holding close to my heart and has been really helpful in guiding our actions. Um, and just seeing how different groups organize is really helpful, particularly because we are a new organization. Um, you said, I mean, I know Rise for Youth, they have also started speaking out um, at the board meetings too, maybe. And you have been, yeah, PwC Mutual Aid have been speaking out. I guess like my question is, um, you know, like for them, it's like a trauma-informed care center and they heavily believe, like they support that idea and the team behind the proposed JDC, they've been, they say that they have like evidence-based research done on the majority model, which is which the um, JDC is based off of. So I guess like what are PwC mutual aid counter arguments to that? Because for them, like as evidence-based is I mean, I don't know if it is. I don't know how much of an evaluation there has been done on the JDC and on the Missouri model and if it's been successful and how many other localities have implemented that model. So, uh, yeah, the Missouri model, we, um, when we heard like trauma-informed JDC, we were a little confused um, because that kind of seems, you know, paradoxical um, because you're putting kids in cages uh, uh, exposing them to more trauma and then saying you're a trauma-informed facility. So just logically that didn't make sense to us, but as we looked more into it, um, we looked at their planning study. Um, and honestly, the evidence that they're providing is not strong, um, especially the Missouri model. It's only been used in a few places and they haven't found great success with it. There's there's other models and frameworks that work better. Um, and we have met with people from the Department of Social Services and the Department of Juvenile Justice. And even they kind of didn't have a great idea on what trauma-informed meant. Um, at the moment, it seems to be painting the walls earth-toned and not having as many guards. So, um, it doesn't feel particularly evidence-based and it's, but it has been very difficult to find information on that, so. Yeah, I agree. I was also researching and then there's, I mean, they have an entire PDF on the Missouri model, but that's by the people who implemented that model. So of course, like, I don't know how much of that I can trust. And the planning study, I mean, they keep mentioning the trauma-informed word, but, and just having, colors that are neutral and like nature-like and having more windows. I don't know how much of that is trauma-informed, but. Yeah, so if we say that the JDC model as it's proposed, the idea of the fact that it's a JDC is what PWC Mutual Aid and other organizations are against, the fact of building another JDC. So, and, and we, we've heard from uh, Daniel Birdie, as well as from, you know, stuff that you guys have said in the past uh, capacity-wise, that even though this is a reduced capacity supposedly from the current JDC, it's still well over 
um, what they would see intake-wise every month. Um, and, and that's continuously dropping even without the pandemic. Um, my question is for those, let's say five kids, seven kids, eight kids, nine kids that do need services in some way or another, what is your solution? Um, I know that you said that you like to keep that close to your heart, imagining a world where kids are not kept in cages or a prison free world for, for our youth. What do we do for those, those individuals that are, would currently be placed in a JDC? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question and definitely something that we're kind of thinking about on an ongoing basis. Um, but I think it's important to note that a very small percentage of the youth in the JDC um, have actually committed violent crimes. A lot of them have committed status offenses like skipping school or missing their curfew. So um, I think, you know, the juvenile justice system is is kind of being reformed as we speak with um, the new Commonwealth attorney and new juvenile judges. Um, and I think that's something that should be kept in mind as well as the fact that 80% of the youth in the current JDC are youth of color. Um, you know, those youth of color are criminalized at a much higher rate than um, white youth. So I think that before we analyze um, kind of alternatives to the JDC, that's important to understand. Um, we're definitely looking at things like group homes um, and more mental health or substance abuse programs um, to help kind of the, the root causes of why these kids might be um, committing uh, criminal acts and interacting with the justice system. Uh, Rise for Youth, again, also has a really great comprehensive model um, that's an alternative to the JDC that we're, we're working with them to hear more about. So um, there's definitely more solutions. And I think that the JDC is just seen as the easy solution for the county when there's so much more that they could do to help these kids on on a long-term scale. Lastly, um, unless Ikra has something else to, um, lastly, I think I, I just like to ask uh, support-wise. So we talked about some other organizations that are supporting you, but um, locally from elected officials or those that are the power holders um, who will be making a decision or have the ability to weigh in on this. Um, we know that Supervisor Kenny Bodie had a, is doing a series on juvenile justice. Um, and uh, we've heard repeated mentions of the Commonwealth attorney and her uh, push for a reform of what we had traditionally been seeing when it comes to um, youth uh, justice or injustice um, in, in this county. Um, where are you getting support from? What do you see as your biggest opposition, uh, whether that be the County Board of Supervisors or uh, other institutions that exist in this county? So I would say, firstly, our biggest supporters are just community members. We've had, um, we uh, launched like an initiative to collect people's stories about interactions with the justice system, whether that's with the police or with juvenile justice. And we got a lot of um, very vulnerable and impactful stories. So um just hearing those and having community members continue to show up at the board meetings, even when, you know, the JDC isn't on the agenda, just knowing that we have that ongoing support and that it is important to the community has been um, a really big 
motivator for us, I would say. Um, and I think the biggest opposition, honestly, is um, just the Department of Juvenile Justice. Uh, you know, they're, we've, we've had discussions with them and they've been at Kenny Bodie's town hall. Um, they've said, you know, like some kids just choose not to listen. Um, the JDC is the only way they can fix these kids, you know, just a lot of problematic rhetoric um, we've seen from them. And so I think that they're the biggest challenge because um, they just believe very wholeheartedly in a JDC being the way to fix, quote unquote, fix these uh, kids that they're criminalizing. You mentioned uh, like fixing the kids and just like reducing crime and when like in the JDC, in the current JDC, 52% of the youth reaffirmed. So they like, there's a high rate of like people just coming back and clearly something is wrong, right? They're either not being provided with services needed. And it's nice that you guys are bringing the personal aspect and the personal narrative by like sharing the stories. And I wonder like if the students or I guess like the youth in the JDC have been, because at the end of the day, it's about them, services being provided to them. And I wonder if they've been asked like what's best for them, what, how would they want to be helped or but I don't know if you have. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I would love to talk to them any day. I They're kind of like what motivates me and a lot of the organizers, um, but you know, they are minors. So, so we aren't able to contact them, but I do think that the county has a responsibility to ask those that will be impacted by this by this new JDC what what they need like do they need a trauma-informed center do they need a new center do they need services at home um I just I I really think that is important so I, I think that's a great point What's something that like uh, you guys thought of when you listened to Selima's interview? I was just confused about one part because Selima was saying in her interview how um, this JDC incorporates uh, not only serious offense offenders but also like ones that do petty crimes like um, skip school or stay out past curfew. But then when talking to Daniel Birdie, he said quite the opposite and saying that only serious uh, offenses are in the JDC or primarily. Yeah. I was also very intrigued by it. Um, I looked at the presentation in the plan planning study. In the presentation, they do mention assault, robbery, and larceny. I think that's how you say it. I don't know what the word is. As being mm -hmm. three top three criminal charges for those detainees. But in the planning study, they did say that 70% of the charges associated with detention admissions in at least 2015 fiscal year, the year that they pulled their entire data from um, were associated with violations of supervision that include um, I am I'm in violation of supervision that includes uh, breaking curfew I believe I mean that's kind of the same thing as what we hear like a lot of times happen to people that are pulled back into the criminal justice system it's like a parole violation that's as small as like somebody not making it to work on time or not coming home right. by the exact minute and so it's almost like we incentivize these systems to pull these people back in so we can keep housing those beds. It's not like we have that many more people committing these violent offenses 
you know, it, it's, it's those same people. So we keep talking about the recidivism rate and that we don't want people coming back into prison, but then we keep pulling them back by having these restrictions that land them back in the exact same very place that they're trying, we're trying to get them not to come back to. Yeah, and I think it also highlights the need of having some alternatives to a detention center because violating supervision should not be equal to like murdering someone or like, you know, like those big crimes. And they shouldn't be put in the same place as people who have done other things. I, I don't know. But. Plus making one mistake, I think, look, I'm, I'm not here to say that like somebody who murdered somebody or somebody who held up somebody in an armed robbery is, is guilt-free. Like obviously there needs to be consequences for those kinds of things. But if, you, if, if somebody's trying to better their life, right? And then they end up back in the prison system because not because they robbed a bank again, but because of these smaller petty things, like it would make me lose hope. And it would be like, you know what, forget it. You know, I am just gonna go back to whatever I was doing beforehand because clearly the system's not willing to forgive me. Even though I was a kid. I mean, like I teach high school, this is ridiculous to, to, to think that these are full capable adults. Like we don't wanna give them the rights of other adults, but we wanna give them the consequences of full grown adults. Come on, do better. I completely agree with that as Me a teen too. myself. Yeah, like look at research. It has shown that that reinforcement is better than like punishment. I promise you only have to take the most basic intro psychology, like AP psych, in order to know that reinforcement is, is much better than punishment. But we're all just about punishing people. So punishment is like literally our first option to whatever somebody has done, whether it be big or small. But we want to pretend that as a society we're moving away from that. Like we want to talk yeah. about like, oh, different alternative forms of justice. And like we want to talk about reform of school things. But then when it comes to these big things like a JDC, we're not willing to have that conversation because we're too afraid of letting go of the status quo. We're too afraid of trying something new, even though we know that what we've been trying before is clearly broken. Um, it's 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 stupid. Honestly, I think the fact that people don't want to be more creative about it. My, I think another big thing is like, when we were doing research for this, I think we asked this in a couple of our questions to Daniel Birdie too, was like, why aren't these conversations held more publicly? Like, I feel like this is something that involves possibly every single person's child or every single child themselves, right? Like it impacts the entire community. Mm -hmm. I feel like all of us should at least understand what happens. Like who goes into the JDC? What happens after you go to JDC? You know, what kind of crimes land you there? And what are the alternatives to the traditional forms of punishment that we give to people such as prison uh, or fines or whatever have you like it's so hard to get that information there isn't like one rule book that we have in a community no i i agree with you there's definitely something very unique about the way djj or the county government thinks about these issues and i mean we are going from one detention center to another detention center and this is what we're calling improvement and I mean, oh, let me correct myself, not just another detention center, it's a detention center with trauma-informed care. And talking about that phrase, putting people in a confined place is a trauma in itself to an extent. And also the current GDC provides a number of services, such as those by the Department of Mental Health, Substances Abuse Services, and ongoing therapy groups. And we still see that 57.1%, whatever the number is, um, of youth reoffending, meaning committing a crime again, 
I don't know what that crime might entail, and ending up back in, JD, um, in the Detention Center and the new JDC is said to have more of those services. And I got nothing against those services, because, but the context being the det detention center in which we're providing these rehabilitative services, or we will be providing these services is not right. Because if we think, where was I going with this? I've lost it. Yeah, no, I, you said that you're not against like us providing those services. And obviously, like, I don't think any person is against providing like trauma informed services to people, right, or to provide more mental health capacities. But like, those people that are sitting here and being proponents, which as far as we know, might be the entire board, because no one's had come out and flat out said like, no, we, we don't want to do this. We're like, let's put a pause on this. Um, as, as far as we know, those people also aren't the loudest advocates of mental health counselors in schools. Like they might, they might support that, but it's like, I need you to put your money where your mouth is. So like, where have you been ever since you got elected in 2019 to push right away for like, no, our youth in our schools need more counselors. You know, the, the ratios are abysmal. Um, kids can't even, and it's the same people that are academic, uh, giving them ed, ed, academic advice as the people that are dealing with like some serious traumas. Like it's too much of a workload also on the people that are doing those jobs currently. So I don't know, it's the same thing as like, I guess this is slightly off topic, but like with the pandemic and then people are worried like, oh, kids aren't getting education in the virtual environment. And like, you know, um, they're worried about like, yeah, kids need to go back to school, but then, you know, you have teachers that are gonna have classrooms that are way too big and it's hard to manage like, you know, 15 kids. And so you're talking about spacing and all that. Okay, well, where were you like two years ago or three years ago when it came to advocate for less smaller classroom sizes, right? Like everyone wants to hop on the board and, and talk about these, big issues without having put in the legwork and, and being supportive of those measures that would have not made this an issue to begin with. And same thing with JDC it has been here since 1974 when it was built based on an adult detention centers um, design. And, and sure it has had two renovations since then, but still 46 years like of keeping the same thing and like the issues that they list in their own planning study for the proposed GDC, uh, some of them include like shower presenting, um, like showers, like presenting safety hazards or kitchen and laundry spaces being inefficient and inadequate space for like counseling treatment programs. I mean, there's just so much wrong with it. And if it's, if it took us like what, 46 years to actually sit down and realize that there's all these things wrong with it, we're just so behind. It just shows that we're so behind on everything we do. Same thing with 287G, we let it expire. This thing too, we, it took us so many years to realize that this is wrong and the outcome that we're coming up with is just horrific. Like, wow, we're just gonna make another detention center. We are behind. We're almost always behind what Fairfax does, what, you know, these these other localities that are more north of us do as well. We want to kind of follow their path. But 10 years later, we've done that with regard to education, um, with revenue streams, with, you know, just focuses that they have. Um, and it's kind of sad because I think I read that it was about a year ago that um, Arlington, Alexandria and Falls Church were having a conversation about what to do with their JDC. And there was even a question of like, maybe we close it. And one of the suggestions that was that was put forth was like, and send those kids that need services to Prince William County. Now, obviously that's not a solution in any way because they're still staying within the same framework, but at least they were talking about the fact that they were thinking of closing it as opposed to building a brand new 
almost $50 million facility. When your schools are all overcrowded, you want to sit here and make a $50 million facility for perhaps maybe the 13 beds that you have filled at any given point. Come on, think, you know, think outside of the box, be more creative. Let's go into, so Salima talks about all those things. Kind of let's go into our closing thoughts about this whole thing, I guess. Um, so one of the things that we talked to about Salima was this idea of what do we do instead of this? I think a lot of the crit like the criticism that's going to come from a conversation like this is like, well, what do you want to do? You don't want to give these people um, consequences for their actions. You do something wrong. That's what life is all about. You know, like those people that always talk about like, you know, that's just you're, you're setting them up for failure later because if they show up late to a job, then they're not going to have con they're going to have consequences from that, you know, get fired. So what are the alternatives to a JDC? Like what, let's say, especially not just about what their first offense is, what landed them there, but especially concerning is that if there's a parole violation that they end up back in a JDC, what are the alternatives to this? Getting more resources for those who are uh, common or like offenders in general. Like for example, some of the kids that end up there may not have been like breaking curfew or like skipping school. And I don't see that as a big offense, but a lot of times the reasoning behind that is bigger than just like skipping school. And I think that more resources should be provided to prevent them from skipping school by like helping them at home or like getting them the resources that they need before they decide, oh, I can't go to school like I this is more important or I don't feel like I can or need to go to school because I'm already being told that I'm going to end up at somewhere like the JDC yeah let's not forget the role that schools have had to play in this as well so if a student ends up you know let's say they get in trouble they go to the JDC then they're they get whatever sentence they get or you know whatever the decision is that the courts make um, they end up back in their original home community um, they're going to school, but let's say they have a parole officer or have a certain guidelines and they miss those. Let's not forget that the roles that the schools have to play in this. Like how much of an effort is the school making sure that whatever was lacking the first time around that we're filling that need, right? And with a county like Prince William that, what was it in 2018 or just a couple of years ago where we led the state of Virginia in the highest number of school disorderly conduct charges against students. You know, we've talked about how color plays a factor into this as well, um, race, color, ethnicity, with Hispanic and Black students being suspended and expelled more. The same thing was true for the school disorderly conduct, and the same is true for the, the kids that are um, impacted by the juvenile um, injustice system that we have here. I mean, it seems kind of obvious in that sense to me, if I were like an official of some sort, if I'm constantly punishing my black and brown students um, in an inordinate amount compared to like white students, why would they want to come to school? Why would they want to follow any rules if they're gonna be punished for even doing like the slightest thing wrong? And also we can't ignore the fact that this is good content. <laughs> Um, what was I say? What was I say? So it? we can't forget. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, we also can't forget about the fact that detention center is not only relevant to people while they're in there, but also has very long lasting effects such as people who are placed in these um, 
confined places, they are more, much more likely to have, you know, stress-related illnesses such as hypertension or um, uh, higher rates of overweight and obesity. And if we're looking at, and so it's just not like a couple of weeks or like a month or a year thing. It's like, it's a life sentence basically. And in our juvenile justice system or injustice system, we see that youth of color are being incarcerated at a higher rate that just goes to show that like of course these youth will grow up to have more healthcare problems right automatically because of their past in jdc um so they're gonna end up having um high um, chances of dying early and mix that with like income equality and like poor health care system and everything else that's wrong with our society we're like done done and like yeah. it's, it's a system, like this entire system is messed up we're, we start so young we incarcerate these youth so young and we don't realize that they are being put like in their entire life is being put behind and for them it's not just like we're putting them in this and the JDC for 32 days no it's lifetime basically yeah no and I think it's also like just how cyclical this whole thing is right like it might sound like we're a broken record that we talk about education and we talk about like you know um, issues with regard to people of color, but they're all so interlinked. So if you're like, I think what Chloe was saying, like if you're telling these black and brown kids that they're not worth enough, like we're not giving them the options with regards to classes or like we're not painting the picture of a bright future for them. We're not giving them role models that they're seeing in their schools. Then they have less of a chance of being fully integrated into that society, right? And um, once they're not feeling that connection to the community that they're from, that they that they live in, then they're more likely to do things that are counterproductive to them being productive residents of that community, um, which might end up being something that leads them to go into a JDC. So there is like, it's not just beating uh, you know a dead horse and saying that like, oh, everything is a racial thing. I'm just thinking about the critics that are gonna listen to this or as this discussion, discussion comes up across the county, the people are gonna say like, stop whining, you know, like not everything is about race, but unfortunately Prince William County is proving time and time again that this is about race. And this is our time to have that reckoning when it comes to race, right? We're having this racial and social justice commission come up. We're having this conversation about like how race impacts like individual experiences in this county as a whole. Um, let's listen to those people that are going to be telling us about their experiences, whether that's members of PWC mutual aid that have, some of them have personally been impacted by the um, criminal justice system here locally, or whether that's students talking about their experiences in schools that very well might lead them down a path that, that goes very close to where the JDC is, right? Um, we need to listen. Because if we really want to improve, then we need to ask those who are uh, directly affected by the JDC, such as, of course, the youth living in the detention center, and of course, also the youth outside, because we are the ones who are most likely to end up in the detention center, and um, and that's not the Board of County Supervisors or some other person in the government office. And sure, they can vote on it, and that's their job, but that should come after we decide um, what should occur and whether the proposed JDC should be passed um, or should be built and listening to us, the youth. Yeah, I think that's a question that a lot of other youth and students would have if they were in on the conversation. Uh, personally, I know that 
probably none of my friends even know what is happening with the JDC or I can't even name like another person my age that's talking about it. And I think that's the real problem within our county that, and it's annoyingly common how we're always having these conversations that are involving our students and our youth, but they're never the primary uh, party involved in making the decisions. I think um, I was in one of the, um, I was listening to the school board meeting in which they were giving the report of how the superintendent search is going. And they had had some student panels. And I think it was Miss Lily Jesse who pointed out something really incredible. She said like, you know, we all know we hear from those students that are like the all A students, the ones that are have perfect attendance and all those things. And those are most frequently the students that we pull into these panels, even when we are getting feedback from the youth. But she said like, what about those students who are C students or maybe are struggling with the system? Like their feedback, in fact, is almost more important because the current system isn't working for them. So if we're looking to change something, we need to engage them. How do you do that? I don't know. There's no simple answer. But like if you're not even being creative enough to not think of, of building a facility that's just painted a different color and, you know, that's your answer to, um, you know, criminal offenses by, by youth then you're clearly not going to think of like more engaging ways of incorporating, you know, uh, people from different linguistic backgrounds, people from different life experiences into the conversation so that you can get a bigger picture. Or maybe you actually just don't want the bigger picture because that kind of ruins the plan that you have um, for how the county should proceed. I don't know. All good thoughts. <laughs> Chloe, do you want to wrap up the conversation? Yeah, well, I guess that wraps up our conversation. <laughs> She's so annoying. She did this on purpose. She's not, this was, you do realize that's, you did that on purpose, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. This is only the first of many conversations that we will have regarding the JDC and uh, other facilities like it in our county. Uh, but the main point of our conversations in this podcast is to get more people involved, locally, that is. And so if you have time, please get involved, reach out to uh, your elected officials about your thoughts on the issue, read up on it, talk to your friends, your family, anybody that you can, and just provide your feedback so that they can hear your voice. So this wraps up our first of hopefully many conversations, just like Chloe said about the JDC, because we anticipate that there'll be a lot more of them, especially in this coming year. So hoping that more and more of you get involved in talking to your supervisors about this, getting more informed about the topic so that you can be a part of the conversation as well. We especially like to thank our two guests, Salima Dries and Daniel Birdie from Prince William Times, um, that took their time to sit down and have that conversation with us. If any of you guys are in need of resources or uh, would like to donate resources, please check out our friends at PwC Mutual Aid. You can find them on Twitter as well as on Instagram. And I'm sure that they'll be more than happy to connect you with the resources that you, resources that you need or with uh, the people that need those resources in turn. Um, take care of yourselves and until next time, Peace out. No. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned for an upcoming episode on the Rural Crescent. If you don't know what that is, well, that's the very reason you should tune in. Remember, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the content creators and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect those of an official entity. 
This has been Prince William Colors. Prince William Colors is an inclusive production. If you have questions, an idea for an episode, or just want to get involved, contact princewilliamcolors at gmail.com. More episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So don't forget to subscribe.